Next, uh, but tomorrow and, and through the week, we do have snacks, so that'll be fun. Um, <clears throat> we're closing down Christian spirituality this morning, and uh, that's a bittersweet thing to do. I mean, we're not, that's not a right way to say it. We're closing down our study, our intensive study on Christian spirituality. And uh, if you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Friends, I want you to have a good summary of the Bible. I want you to have a good, solid theology. To join our church, we have a requirement of doctrinal statement compliance or that you're in agreement with our doctrinal statement. Not to participate here, but to join and be a voting member. We have this expectation. If you read that doctrinal statement, it's very detailed. It's very explicit. And it's a, it's a helpful summary and protection for the saints here um, doctrinally. But the doctrinal summary isn't the point. Being able to give a good theology isn't really the point. The point is to walk by the Spirit according to the Word. And your theology isn't necessarily the Word, right? It's not the same as what God said. It's what you understand of what He said. And there's a difference. There's a difference. So one thing I think it's really important to to constantly put in front of you, our, our... goal can't just be give me the theological application or the doctrinal you know summary it can't be that we actually have to think through what god said together now that is something it's one of those jobs that americans aren't willing to do you know today it's it's not popular to actually work through the bible and accept what it's requiring me to do but i promise if you'll do it your theology will be more robust your understanding your summary will actually be nourished and rejuvenated because it will be actually fed by the scriptures themselves. One of the most challenging passages in the Bible to really nail down everything Paul is talking about is 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 6 through 3 3. There's a lot of questions and controversies that surround this passage, like for example, look at verse 12, we have received not the spirit of the world, what does that mean, the spirit of the world? But the Spirit who is from God, that's an interpretive translation. They put a capital S, the Spirit who is from God, or the Spirit which is from God. So that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual. That's a really challenging passage because of all the uses of the word spirit. This is why we study Christian spirituality. One reason is because of this passage. It's vital to see that you as a believer are not necessarily filled by the Spirit. You're not necessarily walking as you should, even if you have Christ. Even if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, sealed forever by the Spirit of God unto the day of redemption. It isn't guaranteed, and that's what's wrong in Corinth. Now look what he says. We, the apostles, is what he means in context. Have not received the Spirit of the world. This does not mean that somehow there's this personal being who lives inside unbelievers, like a a demon or something, the spirit of the world. But spirit is used that way sometimes as unclean spirits. It doesn't mean, uh, therefore, that unbelievers or people that aren't apostolic are demon-possessed. 
It means something that we all know and experience all the time. The spirit of the world, as the Apostle Paul is using here, is the worldview that pervades all societies that basically says I don't have to obey God. The spirit of the world is that collection of thoughts and perspectives that dominates all cultures in one way or the other. The spirit of the world. It's been called by the Germans. You ready for this? Zeitgeist. The spirit of the times. Zeitgeist. That's what that means. Spirit of the times. When we talk about, think about this with me just for a second. Think about the 60s. Some of you are like, that is irrelevant because I was born in the 2000s. But, uh, but this was, I know, not so ancient history, the 60s. When you think of the 60s, culturally, we have this iconic thing that's been fed to us from popular culture of what it was like. You think of the 60s, probably some sort of filter is put on your mental video camera where the colors are a little bit different. There's some sort of grungy guitar like Credence or, or uh, Lenny Kravitz or some, some sort of grunge guitar. Jimi Hendrix is in the background of the soundtrack of the 60s. Okay, as we're popularly portraying it today, that's how it was, and it was free love and all these things. We think of, well, that was that time. You know what else it was? It was a culture. There was a time in which, in, in America, where you had a, an American culture that was reacting to certain ideas that we thought were new, but were really old. And in that mix, in the 60s, there was this c- kind of cultural expectation of what was normal, there was the kid saying, no, we want to do it this way. And then there was the, the conservative reaction to that. And, and that, that tumultuous time is how we think of the 60s. And under that, you have a lot of self-righteousness. A lot of everybody's right because it's me. And there's no one good but God, says the Lord Jesus Christ. And what you, what you find is, if you just take, any, take, take today, 2019, what's the culture that we live in? What is the fight? What is the cultural battle that's going on between various factions? We try to summarize it, make it red and blue or something. It's very complicated. But what's going on is somehow we are losing grasp of first thoughts, first principles, our theological summary. How is this happening? pastor that uh, is my age, who, who as a young man wrote a famous book, just came out this last weekend. A very famous best-selling author. Everybody read his stuff. Everything I wrote, I don't believe in anymore, and I'm not even a Christian anymore. And, all, and, and, all these, and he's a hardcore reformed guy. How can he be you know, a Christian if he's, if he's saying he doesn't really believe the same way anymore it's a great theological challenge and so we're trying to work our theological summary his church that he pastored for years would say well he never was elect so we know he wasn't he wasn't saved it's a it's a huge challenge and how's this happening well in this case he's losing his summary he's losing track of his perspective his set what's going on inside you see what i'm saying that that set of values or, or, or principles has eroded and he's lost track. And I think you can always, there's two things that people basically do from a Christian worldview to go to um, the decay, whether it's from the 60s or the 40s or whenever it was, this happened. It was going on in the 20s with the fundamentalists versus the liberals. <clears throat> Here's what happens. We basically don't believe sin is as bad as it is, where all of human history is now 
a reaction, if you will, a, a, a consequence of Genesis 3 and the fall. We don't really think sin is as bad as it is because we don't really think God is as explicit as he is in his communication. We'll drop sin because we drop the Bible. We let go of his revelation, and so we let go of the consequence in telling us that we're sinners. I mean, if you come here every week, you're going to be told you're a sinner because we're going to be in the Bible, which tells me, oh, I don't measure up. Isaiah is my favorite example of this. Isaiah, when he is a, probably an aristocrat, a court official, when he is caught by God into a vision of the throne room of heaven in Isaiah chapter 6, he immediately, all his Sunday school, okay, all his Saturday Sabbath training, all his instruction in the Word according to the Mosaic Law, has all of a sudden come to the fore and he realizes that what was theory is real. I am sinful and Almighty God is infinitely righteous. The vision he has of the, the throne room of God, he immediately says, Woe is me, for I'm ruined, for I've seen the Holy One. I've seen Yahweh. I've seen God. And that ha- immediately causes him to, to fall on his face in shame, in horror of his sin. See, the reality of who God is, as, which we know from what he's told us in the Word, comes face to face with our limitations in our sinfulness and it thrashes us. And what I'm describing here is what we call a biblical worldview. We're sinners. We're broken. We need a Savior. We need God to do something about our broken condition. And this is hopefully my prayer for you is that this, what I'm saying is just a summary of what you've got going on in the treasure chest of your soul that this is what you already know and believe and we're reinforcing it by saying so. But to say, for example, well, I mean, is God really that worried about our sexual practices? We're made of flesh. The animals are made of flesh. Shouldn't we do what just kind of our instincts tell us? Can't we uh, sort of incorporate that view into our Christian views? I mean, that's just Darwinism. It's just biology, biological urges. And after all, some of the greatest theologians of the 20th century said Darwin's good to go. And now, the, now the, they're, they're saying, you know, we, Genesis 1 through 11 is myth. It's, it's a story, but it, it's, it's telling the truth, but it's not telling scientific facts. And so see, the erosion happens, and all of a sudden we can't face the, the, the clear moral explanations of Scripture that say, do not dishonor your body that God made for you to serve Him with by practices that He said not to do. Hold your vessel with sanctification and honor in 1 Thessalonians 4. Let the bearer's bed be undefiled in Hebrews 13. See, and why am I talking about this area? Because sex is the, probably the main avenue of attack. Because it's the place where I have a certain feeling, but God's word has a certain expectation, and those, at times, for all of us, Come in contact, and, and you as a young person especially, decide who you're going to be, what's your life going to be like. There's a simple recipe in the scriptures, and it is the way to set yourself up, not for a life of bliss and marital happiness, that may be there, but it does set you up for a life of pleasing service to God, which is what you're actually on earth for. What I'm describing here in our time is our worldview that has eroded 
we've lost our moorings because we've lost the revelation of God. And that's one main reason we assemble. And so what you're doing, look around, look at this place. This with its crooked floors and its eroding basement and all the, pro- all the problems that you see in this physical plant, this place is a monument to saying no to the spirit of the world. You can come at me from any direction you want to deny the scriptures and we are going to say, but God said, and his way and his explanation is better than your account. But God said. I understand what you're saying. I may not be able to square what you're saying with what God said, but God did say. And that's what Eve is challenged with by the serpent in the garden. And that's what you're constantly challenged with with the word. He says in verse 12, we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. One interpretation of this is that that means the Holy Spirit. The other is that this means the new regenerated spirit. And it doesn't, Greek doesn't capitalize. The spirit which is from God is the way I view this. So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. So that the equipment we need spiritually is a new spirit, a new you that happens when you first believe in Christ. Your regeneration by the Spirit of God includes the regeneration of your spirit, the new birth. Which, which things, Paul says, these things, we speak in words taught by human wisdom, not taught by human wisdom, but in the words taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual. You who are a spiritual being, who have a new spirit and responsiveness to God, are being taught by the Holy Spirit who lives in you, these spiritual truths from the apostolic word. Now again, I told you, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is a very challenging passage. If you wanted to say, no, that has to mean Holy Spirit in verse 12, I'm fine with that. I have reasons that I think it's probably the human spirit, but hey, the difference between the Holy Spirit working in me and my human spirit receiving that work, that's really not something I can detect in my experience. Now, what's the, what's the reason we need to talk about this? The natural man, verse 14, the person without this spiritual equipment, this is the one born spiritually dead. This is the one who doesn't have Christ. He does not accept the things or welcome the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolish, foolishness to him. And that's the gate. The gate says no to this revelation from God because it... Uh, it doesn't make sense. And every time you hear the world say, the biblical account doesn't make sense, you're hearing 1 Corinthians 2.14. It don't make sense. They're foolish to him and he can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised or judged or apprehended. There has to be this spiritual work of God in you, the new you, to be able to welcome and therefore understand these things. And so it doesn't mean that they can't understand the, the, the sentences and constructions in the Bible. It means that they cannot spiritually appraise them and welcome them and therefore receive them. It's not just cognition. It's also volition. It's, the, it's you and what God does with the word in you that Paul is describing. But he who is spiritual, that's why we're talking about Christian spirituality. He who in his new birth is also being equipped by the Holy Spirit with the Word of God. That's verse 13. He who has the new birth and the Holy Spirit living in him, who is using the Word, the apostolic teaching in him, to make him spiritual, characterized by the Holy Spirit. He appraises all things, yet he himself is not appraised by anyone. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? We have the mind of Christ. See, that's the, this is the definitive passage that we get our term spirituality from. He who is spiritual. That is you, a new believer, or a believer, and not an unbeliever, a believer, regenerate, new in Christ, who is also so empowered by the Holy Spirit that the Word of God is conforming you in your experience to the character of Christ. Now, why does Paul say this? If we, as we read on, we, they gave a chapter break, but it isn't a break in his thought. I, brethren, could not speak to you, 3-1, speak to you as to spiritual, but as to men of flesh or carnal as to infants in Christ. So I've got to talk to you like you don't have the spiritual characterization by God with His Word. I've got to talk to you like newbies that don't know anything. Infants in Christ. And to, to say men of flesh is to say functionally like babies. That's the Corinthians. That's their problem. This is why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Is the word, Paul knows, because he's been given this by God, he knows what the word will do. But it's not doing it with the Corinthians. They've got problems. They're dividing over this pastor or that pastor. They're dividing Christ by who they like to listen to. Ever heard of that? See, that's the Corinthian error. And Paul says, you're babies. I, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able. Indeed, even now you're not able. You still can't eat a steak. And he's saying you should by now. There is a problem of spiritual immaturity that goes hand in hand with carnality being characterized by your sinful flesh, by your sin nature. For you are still carnal in verse 3, fleshly, characterized by the flesh. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like unbelievers? He says mere men, but he means unregenerate, unspiritual. So here's, you've got three categories going on, at least. You've got spiritual Christians, you've got carnal Christians, and you have mere men. And the carnal looks like mere men. That's as really straightforward in the passage. And the, the evaluation, or my spiritual or carnal, well, that's Divined in the passage, are you being characterized by the things of God as taught through the apostles and prophets? Is the word having its effect supernaturally through the power of the Holy Spirit? Paul said, I tried to give you some, something you could grow on. You still act like you can't, your, your system's kicking back milk. This is Christian spirituality. This is ta- teaching it by negative example. They're, they're blowing it. They're messing it up in Corinth. Well, I have an illustration that I find very helpful to think through what we mean by the Holy Spirit conforming our characters to Christ. And I beg your indulgence to show you this one more time as we close down our discussion of Christian spirituality. Is that a good-looking white rectangle or is that a rhombus? Let me look at It's a trapezoid. Our Sunday morning trapezoid. Usually we have a much better uh, projector situation, but we're, we're kind of in camp over here at Tulum or Chichen Itza or wherever this is, this uh, Mayan ruin. Okay, so here's what I want to say. This is um, answering the question, who are you, based on you are what you think and you are what you do. Some people really insist that you are what you think, and that's where they want to live. And boy, they're thinking about it, right? 
Other people are not going to think for a second, but um, you are what you do, and they're do, 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 do. Our church is more of a thinking side than the doing side uh, in our genetics, in our DNA. And I think that's good because if you are going to go, if you're a rocket ship and you need to, to be on a mission, you actually need fuel to, uh, to fire. And so no fuel but let's, let's launch is a, a, a prescription for failure. All fuel but no launch is also a failure. And so I'm saying spirituality is not just what you know or think. It's what you do, but you have to know to do. And so I think I'm going to show you, I believe I've, I've got a demonstration of how to think about this in terms of the inner workings of what you know versus what you do with it. The green box. Now that's, that's like a treasure chest. I think I'm going to change the illustration from the green box to the treasure chest of the soul. It's what's in there. See, we've received not the spirit of the world, right? We don't have this zeitgeist, this, this worldview characterized by Satan's deceptive systems of basically dis, disbelieving in God. Oh, well, we can see rivers, so we have to conclude that the earth is hundreds of thousands of years old. Charles Lyell. Rivers have layers and so old. Okay, well, that's an interesting suggestion, but it's a non-disprovable tautology. That's what we call it. You can't disprove that or prove that. But I've got revelation from God that says the earth is flooded, not old. So what do you do with that? When God blew Mount St. Helens sideways in 1980, I think it was 1980 or 81, and there was immediately a canyon system set up with layers in days, not billions of years. We say, well, wait a second. So large flows of water, volcanic material, and, uh, and solids, they call it periclastic flows, cause layers in canyons. They call it a mini Grand Canyon in Washington State. Hey, we should go up there and see that, shouldn't we? Road trip, right? That would be a lot of fun. Especially if we take uh, Steve Austin, he's, he's in Pennsylvania where he lives. On the way, our soft rock geologist guy, we grab him on our way over west to go see Mount St. Helens. But see, what I'm saying is um, how you evaluate the data will start with your prior convictions. And if you think that what you see or reason is more authoritative than what God says, that's going to be the problem. There's your problem. Who we are. This is your knowledge, what you already have in there. Your understanding, it's a little bit different concept than knowledge. I mean, some people think that if you got it by faith, it's not knowledge. I say it is knowledge, and when you put it into practice, that's wisdom. But your understanding, your beliefs, these are all synonyms, aren't they? Convictions, principles. Most Americans don't want to think about the the, the green box. We want to feel fun. We want to feel good and have fun, right? That's, this, is, this is our goal. You can stimulate your brain with all kinds of visual audio stimulus and have fun until someone shuts off the power. And then you know what? No fun. There's no more fun. Maybe that's not your fun. Maybe your fun is hiking, right? Twist an ankle. That's no fun, right? 
And, but, but it's all about the experiences. But I'm saying, hey, let's go back here to who we are in terms of our initial set, our worldview. But then you got to use it, what you do with it. That's the blue circle, your thinking and your feeling. Now, I'm not drawing a picture of your soul, okay? I'm drawing a picture of your, it's, it's, a, it's a concept chart. It's what do you do with what's in there? Let me give you an example. You ever think something and not carry it out? You ever have a principle you don't live up to? Yeah, we're Christians. Be holy as I am holy, saith the Lord. Right? Walk before me, Abraham, and be blameless. You ever not rise to your own standards? Do you change the standards? Well, that's the popular move today. Oh, your standards are wrong. But see, there's, there's what's in there, and then that's what I do with it. Now, when I feel like doing something I shouldn't do, and my standards in my soul, my green box, say no, but my feelings say yes, what's my only hope of getting this right? What's the only hope? If my feelings are like yes, and my principles are no, how do I get no? How do I get to the right answer? Anybody? What's that? I have to actually think. I have to shut off that voice that says, yes, do it, you feel like it, and say yes to thinking oh, I don't want to do that. Some of us need to spray a little WD-40 on the rusty linkages here of moving from how we feel to how we think or what we think. And this is a choice. But see, this is what I'm saying. Having it in there is different from living it out, from doing it. And Christian spirituality is going to encompass all of it. The Holy Spirit is going to conform your standards, your beliefs, your understanding more and more to the character of Christ by more revelation that you process, that he lets you understand as you stay in the word. And your green box is going to change. It's going to become more and more refined. It'll get more information. I know of a pastor, just for example, who says, well, you know, some people believe in the rapture. He says, some people believe in the rapture. This is a church with hundreds of people in it. And he's saying, you know, those people that believe in the rapture. And uh, some of you are like, I don't even know what that word means. What do you keep saying that for? Well, in this church, like all churches that believe in the Bible, we believe in the rapture. This man that's saying it believes in it too, but he doesn't know what it means because he doesn't understand it yet. But the rapture is just the Latin word for harpazo in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, the catching up, or 4.17. There's coming a time when we're caught up into the clouds to be with the Lord, and so we'll ever be with the Lord when He comes to do this in the clouds. What my friend means and doesn't understand yet is he means some people believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, that it's at any moment coming of Christ that we're waiting for. Like before these birds fly away, someday, Lord, He's going to come get us. Any moment. And so he's saying some people believe in this view of the rapture, but he doesn't even know that he's arguing with the Bible on the word that, he's, that the Lord is going to catch us up in the clouds. And um, you can check, again, First Thess 4, verses 13 through 18 is your passage on this. I'll read it next hour as we share our condolences with our, our sisters who are, are bereft. 
But see, he doesn't understand yet, but as he grows, as he works, so he uses those seminary skills and starts reading the Bible in its original language to study for himself so he can feed his people. He's going to say, oh, you know what? I believe in the rapture. I just don't believe in a pre-trib rapture. But as he studies more, he will. Anyway, um, <laughs> there's a difference between what's in us and what we do with it, our thinking and our feeling. Now, some say that the feelings are only in your body. They're not in your immaterial man. I've heard that said, that the feelings, the emotions cannot be part of the, the heart of man or the soul. Actually, popular American thinking is that the heart is only emotions. And they're like, well, you've got to get your head right, but you really got to get your heart right. And that's how they think about it. But biblically, the heart thinks and intends in Hebrews 4.12, the thoughts and intents of the heart. The thoughts and intentions of, of man's heart were on wickedness com- continually in Genesis 6. Throughout the Bible, the heart thinks but it also feels. The heart gets overwhelmed with sorrow. The heart rejoices. These are words that are used to describe what the heart is doing. And so it's just not biblically accurate to say it's not going on in the inner you. It is. The feelings are part of the inner you. Anytime you feel contrary to what God's word said and you're aware of it, I promise you are dealing with a battlefield in your heart. What do you do about it? Well, we've got to open that treasure box and let God's word give us a different perspective. Somehow, what I believe needs to come to bear on what's going on in me in the moment. Who I am in my thinking needs to be who I am in what I'm thinking now. My beliefs need to carry forward, and this is a constant daily struggle. This is living your life. This is the Christian life. Everybody's doing this, by the way. Everyone is doing this process just... What I'm talking about is when the Holy Spirit gets in charge of your knowledge base, when the Holy Spirit, because you're submitting to God, you're yielding yourself to God in Romans 6, when he's actually helping you think through and pulling some of these truths out. I don't want to disobey him even though I feel like it because there is an eternal reward for glorifying him with my choices in time. My choice now about this will have an eternal consequence and that's worth it to me. That's one helpful mentality. I don't want to break fellowship with the one who loves me and saved me. I want to enjoy him and rapport with him and not disobey him in obedience to his enemy. That's another thought that's in that green box. And the the Holy Spirit, as I submit to God, as I am saturated with the scriptures, will help you recall this to mind. And in Lamentations 3, therefore you can have hope about God's mercies, about God's love. But being theologically sound and living a theologically sound life are not the same thing. And that's that's kind of what we're showing here. But somehow, after the battle of thought versus feeling happens, we make a choice and then we take an action. Why? See, I I work through this constantly, raising children, training children. This is a constant thought process. Why? Is there a gallon of water on my bathroom floor? Why are you wiping it up with toilet paper? (laughs) We're cleaning it. Why did you take this action? Somewhere in here, this happened. And somewhere, this was a good idea that we felt good about and did. Because we're little boys and bored. I mean, this is just easy to do. You, you can think through this. Now, again, I've said many times when I show this, this is not an exhaustive diagram, and it is take, taking something very complex and interrelated and kind of laying it out into to a linear 
process just so you can think through the pieces. But the, this is like taking the globe and flattening it out. You get distortions when you do that. For example, when I choose to think instead of feel, that's an action that I'm taking that's based on a choice that's based on all that. And that all happened to win this battle here. It's, it's an in, in, interrelated interrelated processes i'm just saying we all know the deal when i feel like disobeying god but i think i know god said not to do that so what will i do how do i win the battle on that it's the battle of temptation i believe the answer will be that that green box gets opened up and god thrusts that into our consciousness so that i feel different feelings i feel like Serving the one who loved me in response and gratitude for him. I fe- that's a feeling. Loyalty, there's, a, there's an emotion that comes with loyalty. Let's don't, let's don't make ourselves robots. We're not. And, you're, and there's another thing. I, I can't prescribe your specific kinds of feelings. You should feel really excited by this little discussion today. I can't do that to you. I'm excited about it. Doing my best to make it catching, but I can't, I can't make you feel a certain way that's not my objective some people like to do that they we call them manipulators another word for that is popular preacher no i'm sorry that's mean to say but but the idea that i'm going to go after you emotionally okay doesn't help you when it comes time that my sin nature is serving me a thought a, 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 an urge that directly connects to my feelings in a powerful way and all that will save me is thinking because my feelings are so opposed to what god wants prone to leave him lord i feel it prone to leave the god i love is the old the old hymn come thou fount of every blessing and i think this is going to be the struggle your thinking versus feeling is going to be a fight till the resurrection because of the sin nature so you are what you think that's what's in there you're also what you do what you do with it i think over here is your conscience your conscience ever tell you no? That's what I'm talking about, where you know the right answer, but you feel like doing the wrong answer. That's the battle. Conscience is different from experience. You can experience a seared conscience or experience a satisfied conscience. You ever do the right thing and then hurt, and, but had the satisfaction that you just knew your conscience was clean? Some of you are like, no, I've never done that. Some of you are like, this is church. Yeah, everybody does that all the time. And others are like, not so much. Yeah, this is a church full of sinners saved by grace who are struggling against this problem of the sin nature. I think this is where your worldview lives, but you don't always act in in concord with your worldview. Every time there's a politician who's some sort of moral voice who then gets caught with the love child or something, like, oh, they didn't really believe what they, well, they, they do, but they didn't live it perfectly. They didn't believe it in the moment. They didn't believe it sufficiently, okay, to live it out under temptation. And that's what we're talking about. See, the, the horrible thing of, of false Christian teaching is that if you're really spiritual, if you're really Christian, you won't suffer temptation. You won't suffer this kind of pain that the sin nature is telling you and the world is calling to it and the sin nature is saying this is the right way to feel. And God's word said, but this is what you know because I told you. Worldview versus behavior. 
I think it's good to separate these two things out. And again, my, uh, my rocket ship illustration. Some people think that the Christian spiritual life is about me with the Lord and the Word. And I'm shooting up to spiritual maturity. I'm just shooting off to spiritual heights as I take in the Word and I apply doctrine. Um, but not with other people. Not necessarily in the environs of other people. Well, that's not a biblical model. In fact, biblically, the big application is love self-sacrificially as Christ loved in the power of the Holy Spirit. And to do that, I need you. I need you and you need each other to do that. If you look at the biblical application of these things, it's everywhere in the scriptures. As I close our discussion in this organized way on Christian spirituality, I ask you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. One of our favorite illustrations of the word in us that we then live out. In verses 1 through 3 of Philippians 2, we get several commands. Verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in the same in spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves. If these words are not condemning to you, friends, I'm here to tell you they're condemning to me. These words weigh heavily on the conscience. Listen to that again regarding one another as more important than yourselves. I don't want to do that. I don't. But I know now that I'm supposed to, and now there's a fight between what I think and what I feel. Have this thinking in yourselves, verse 5, which was also in Christ Jesus. And now we launch on what we call the kenosis passage, one of the great Christology sections of the scriptures that tell us who God, that tell, these passages tell us who Christ is. He is God in the flesh. Although he existed in the form of God, that means the essence, morphe, the very essence of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but rather he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. It doesn't mean he put aside his his deity in terms of his essence, it means that he didn't express it. The emptying of Christ is not losing his divinity, it is not expressing his divinity. By taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And who is he being humbled toward? To the Father. He's doing the Father's will all through the gospel presentation. He says, he teaches us not my will, but your will be done. Right? So, so remember how we started. This is, a, this is a moral teaching of Christian behavior toward one another of mind, how we think about the other person with Jesus now as the example who said, God, you have, Father, you have your way and I'll do it. And he humbled himself to the point of crushing humiliation to the death of the cross. And then we keep reading, for this reason also, he was highly exalted. And God bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, 
those who are in heaven on earth and those under the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. God's Word tells me in Philippians 2.4 to think of other people as more important than myself. What I do with that is have trouble. But then God's Word continues and says you're in the pattern of Jesus Christ and the exaltation that you want, that you're worried about, actually comes from humbling yourself before, before the Father toward one another. And so now that's in here, and I've got something to think with. Now, okay, I do want the exaltation that is in the pattern of Christ, so I think it through, even though I feel like hanging on to my own rights, privileges. So then, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, now in my absence, as you have also in my presence, much more. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Live it out. For God is the one working in you, being filled by the Spirit. God is the one working you both to want and to do what pleases Him. This is Christian spirituality. It takes thinking. It takes a robust and regular disciplined intake of God's Word. But it doesn't stop with the intake of the Word. The intake of the Word is where you fill up that treasure chest so the Holy Spirit has something to use in your circumstance. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the spiritual life, the empowerment of Your Holy Spirit through Your Word to deal with the struggles of this life. And we've we've made something fairly simplistic here about the battle between our thoughts and our feelings. Father, sometimes it really is that simple. Our sin nature has us feeling a certain way and your word has our conscience primed to serve you instead. Everyone here, Father, is under this weight, under this pressure in one way or another, at one time or another. I ask that we'd be reminded constantly that the answers go back to your word, to thinking it through, to waiting on you to provide us different feelings, different way to respond. Help us with the Apostle Paul, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.